Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to industrial light and magic digital artist and compositing supervisor Todd Vaziri, who has worked on every Star Wars movie since 2002. Whether helping to create visual effects for the prequels, the sequels, theme park rides, or Stephen Colbert's green screen challenge, Mr. Vaziri's passion for movie making is evident in his every shot and in his every answer on this episode. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 89, Todd I mean, obviously, before we get into your IMDb and your resume and the the movies that you've worked on, I always just like taking it to the beginning and your inspirations growing up. What made you even want to kind of start in visual effects to begin with? Even at a young age, I knew I wanted to be involved with movies at some, for some reason, uh, in some capacity. Even if it meant, even, I think I was like nine or 10 years old and I was already really interested in how the magic is created. Like I remember watching movies and going, how is this affecting me and my friends and my parents and my brother and my sister? How is this, how are, how are these images and sounds and everything? Why are they affecting us so much? And I think I, I didn't know I wanted to deconstruct it, but I think that's what it ultimately was. I wanted to figure out what is going on to cause us to have these emotions watching these flickering lights. I mean, what is, what is, what is the deal here? And, uh, so I always, you know, I wanted to be involved with movies. I was big into action movies and science fiction. So when you're a kid, you know, and you're, you're, you're riding bikes and climbing trees, you know, I wanted to be a stunt performer. Uh, you know, that, that was probably the first big thing is, Oh, wow, I could do stunts. I can ride my bike and on a ra- imagine this cool movie where a kid rides their bike on a ramp and then and they're, when they're in the air it's slow motion and they jump off the bike and they land on the bad guy, you know, just garbage like that. And then it slowly evolved into things like photography and editing and eventually visual effects. Probably more into my teens and then getting into high school and college. Uh, visual effects is where I think I wanted to live. But that spark of, you know, what is going on in Return of the Jedi? That is, you know, these space battles. Why does it look different than Empire Strikes Back? And why did that look different than Star Wars? And how come other space movies look different? And how are they doing the laser blasts? And that, that was always there, seemingly inevitable. <laughs> Looking at back in hindsight, it's seemingly inevitable. <laughs> I mean, because then, obviously, it's easy to have an inspiration or easy to, like, want to do something. But then, of course, putting that into practice and training and actually, like, being educated in how that works takes time and effort. And so with your education and with that training, how did you make this path like an actual career? The, the wonderful thing about uh, the democratization and the ubiquity of digital tools uh, now is that if you want to learn computer animation or Photoshop or After Effects, uh, there are a few outlets that are fantastic and, and the, the barriers of entry are really, really uh, low. In the 90s, that wasn't the case because digital effects were just being born. There was no such thing as a way to, you know, take a class in computer animation in the early 90s. You know, just as a frame of reference, Terminator 2 was 1991, Jurassic Park was 1993, uh, and I was entering Mm -hmm. college in 1991. A lot of this was self-taught. I mean, when it comes to like what I do with my hands every single day, digital effects... 
that was a lot of it was self-taught and uh, figuring out all, along the way as the entire industry figured out how to do this stuff. But the basic fundamentals of what we do, what I do every day is it's, it's the very essence of cinema. It's been right. since the birth of cinema. All of movies is a magic trick. Right. And the magic tricks have just been getting more evolved as the decades move on and, right. uh, and more elaborate and sometimes more technical. And a lot of it is just, you know, up here and, and, and I'm, I'm pointing to my head podcast, <laughs> uh, that it's about cleverness and how do you, how do you package up an old magic trick, uh, in right. a new, in a different way? How do you do the same magic? trick? How do you come up with completely new magic? Anyway. So my, my, my point being that studying the films of the past uh, at, at the time it was the present, uh, <laughs> of the optical, optical compositing models, split screens, rear projection, Pepper's ghost, mirrors, <laughs> glass reflections, all these types of things uh, was training ground for digital visual effects. We're doing, right. in a lot of ways, vast majority of it is the same kind of stuff, just with greater right. fidelity and, and higher quality. And yeah, so when I went to, when I, when I went to film school, there were some very introductory courses to um, the basics of computer animation, but nobody knew how to work the hardware. Nobody right. knew how to work the software. I mean, right. on our first day, they handed us the hardware and software as well as the manual, and the instructor was like, all right, we're all going to be doing this together. Right. <laughs> uh, let's, let's figure out how to use this stuff. Because, I mean, even what you're describing is, and I'd be interested because you, you go from uh, school to then band from the ranch and flat earth and then finally to ilm where you still are and the movies that you were describing whether it's t2 or jurassic park whatever with dennis murin and with industrial light and magic kind of leading that way i'd be curious with your path how have you seen those visual effects change and how have you seen especially ilm kind of leading that charge over the past two decades three decades one of the things that i've learned about ilm in particular but it's true for the entire industry is that there's a uh, the iterative progression of the tools to techniques, the culture of storytelling when it comes to, you know, cinema and movie making. This is true for all disciplines, uh, mm -hmm. costume designers, uh, makeup and hair, uh, cinematographers. Nobody comes in, you know, alone or, uh, you know, with a blank canvas. It's mm -hmm. there's all of these decades of history that you're 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 working on the shoulders of giants and the best giants are the ones who pass the information along and want to really make things better for the next generation of filmmakers. And specifically, I, I mean, Hollywood is a cutthroat competitive environment. There's no question about that. Um, but if you've noticed, the, the, the folks that, are, that gain the, the most respect uh, amongst their peers are the ones who are the most sharing of... Mm -hmm their experiences and their successes and their failures. And having now worked at ILM for 19 years, it took me a, a few years to realize that is one of the, the most exceptional things about ILM is that there's a culture from day one. There has been mm -hmm. a culture of sharing uh, of knowledge and that good ideas can come from anywhere and no idea is wacky and, you know, too wacky to try. And that is where, a lot of the biggest steps in not only for, for ILM's history of 40-some years uh, in the optical days and in the digital days, 
the most wacky ideas, sometimes from directors and screenwriters, sometimes from inside the company, those are the ones that push us forward. Mm-hmm. And it's the, it's the ideas that, like, there's, there's no way we can build uh, an entire uh, a, a, a floating pseudopod made out of water that hovers over, you know, that, that's a, right. something that came from the client. And right. we said, okay, let's, we got to go for it. Now, right. hey, based on our, our success, let's have the villain of the next Terminator movie be liquid chrome and right. be able to shapeshift. This is wild. And then, of course, everybody knows about the, 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 the renegade attempts and making a digital T-Rex for uh, Jurassic Park. There's, there's countless examples of this. Those are like some of the big revolutionary sure. ones. But, you know, folks like... Uh, John Knoll and uh, and Richard Edlund and Ken Ralston and the, 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 some of the uh, most amazing people at ILM have fostered this culture and it is something that I'm so proud to be a part of and I try to live that all the time and and not not hide away all the the secrets or the techniques or the right the things like that and and really share and it it, it shows in the work hopefully that we do. Definitely. And I mean, I guess, I mean, normally I ask this near the end, but I'm, I'm curious because you're, you're talking about these huge leaps. And now as we get into more modern day movie making, it's easy for especially someone like me that's not technically trained to not understand how big of a leap something might have been. Like, I think even a great example is with the Marvel movies and the suits, it all being CG and like not knowing, right? And so things like that that are um, under the radar for a lot of moviegoers, mm-hmm. it's tough for them, especially to say, "Oh, like this is the next advent of what visual effects are and currently is." And I'd be curious with what you're working on and what you've been working on, what you've seen the industry do in terms of leveling up, but then what you've seen kind of moving forward that future becoming. There's there's a couple things that come to mind. One is you know you mentioned something like these the suits in the Avengers films. Uh, those specific time travel suits that that was not an ILM production. I was not involved with that. Um, but everything I've read when you're making a movie of that scale with that many stars, with a gigantic schedule, um, you know, not everything can be top priority and not everything can be hit in time to get all the actors and get all the locations and all the stuff. So the design process in that respect, the design process had not yet completed on what those suits would look like. That's why they were completely hundred percent computer generated. It wasn't because, right. Hey, let's just try this. No, they had not been, right. you know, folks who maybe don't understand the entire process would go, oh, why did they make this CG? Why can't they build it for real? No, they hadn't been designed yet. And, and this allowed right. the filmmakers to get the actors together and film those scenes and then come back and iterate on the design and make the design exactly what they want it to be for the film. Again, that is an iterative process that we've only gotten to this point that we can do something like that on a scale like that, at a volume like that, and at that time frame based on everything that the industry has learned up until now. So what does that mean for filmmaking? That means that it gives the filmmakers more flexibility in how they make their movie. It is still bringing their vision to life. It's just that now there's a new dimension of, okay, if this much budget or this much time has to be spent on these 10 important things, a couple things that can, cannot be top priority, you can still achieve your vision using these right. tools. And nobody's supposed to notice. It's the, right. uh, uh, the magic trick that 
you didn't even know was happening. And it doesn't need to be defended. So I, you know, and, and like, anyway, they're not going to be talking about it in the press because it's like, why? It's, it's like, I, we could talk about right. how we made all these props. Sure. Visual effects is part of the movie making process. It's not this right. totally separate thing. And, and the best films and the best experiences are ones that the visual effects, just like costumes and cinematography, they've been involved from the very beginning and are involved with mm -hmm. how the movie is made. So... So scale and volume and and things like that I, are are tiny when it comes to the the actual film itself, but they make right. a huge difference in how these movies are made. And then you've got things like stagecraft that ILM is doing on Mandalorian, right. which is a super high tech, amazing, stunning, blow your mind type of tech technology that is an illogical extension of everything that the industry has done with digital effects and shining light on a screen behind actors or in front right. of actors. Uh, it, rear projection and front projection taken to its extreme levels. So it's a bit of the old, a bit of the new, put it together. Wow. Think of the stories that we can tell now. Right. It, it, it's so exciting. I think what you're talking about there, too, there was a trend, especially, and we're going to get into the prequels, because I love the prequels, and the things that they did for movies, I think, are still unsaid and, and still just like an incredible legacy, but we're moving into a, a period now, and it's always been the case, but that blend of practical and, and digital is now almost seamless, and I think the people that maybe 15 years ago were like, oh, I can't believe that was all CG or whatever it was, as if it was an insult and not necessarily as if it was something incredible and something that was like moving movies forward with every single scene. But with especially movies now, and I think the Disney Star Wars movies are a great example of kind of blending the practical and the, the digital, at least for a forward-facing audience. What has your experience been, especially now moving into this new decade, let's say 2010 to 2020, of, of visual effects and the tools like stagecraft uh, that you've been able to work on and the things that maybe have elevated uh, your game even more? Uh, good question. Let's see. Um, like in regards to the Star Wars films, we, you know, starting in 2013 or whatever, we started working on Force Awakens, having visual effects supervisors like Roger Guyette and John Knoll and <laughs> Ben Morris and Rob Bradow on, on these, this, these series of Star Wars movies. The, although we are always experimenting and, and trying out new things, there's a giant bulk of work where when it comes to uh, our, how, how are we going to accomplish the large majority of these shots, the space battle shots, how is the spaceship going to land and a, a, actors are actually going to walk right out of it, what should be digital double, what should be stunts, what should we build practically, working with the production designers from the earliest days of inception mm -hmm. of the ideas of the story, that stuff is, is, is not as daunting as it used to be. That stuff mm -hmm. happens. It's now part of the regular process as opposed to, you know, the nineties and two thousands where we were flying by the seat of our pants and production designers were like, okay, well, how little can we build? How much can we build? How much, uh, how, how many millions of dollars are we going to spend on the set? that will ultimately get replaced anyway that I can't tell because we haven't done this enough and, and there hasn't been enough communication between mm -hmm. departments. You know, that stuff has gone, it has been slowly shrinking, 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 shrinking. The more tied our visual effects teams are with the production, that stuff, 
it allows us to really take on the crazy hard challenges right. that are involved. Sometimes it's a specific creature. Sometimes it's an ef- a specific effect. Sometimes it's like storytelling. How are we going to tell the story using visual effects? I, I think that's that's the biggest thing. Like a lot of the bread and butter are, are not mysterious anymore and mm-hmm. allow us to get through the 75%. I mean, it's all hard. It's all right. hard, but it's not as mysterious. And it allows mm-hmm. us to focus on the really crazy hard stuff that right. we have at the beginning. And there always are things at the beginning right. of every show. How are we going to do this? Right. Um, so we, we, the bread and butter gets done. And the crazy experimental dessert is something we get to focus on. And uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I don't know. It's yeah. not up to us to decide. But uh, I, I, to me, yeah, I, the the process of digital doubles for stunts and like when stunts are important and when digital doubles need to take over for, for safety concerns or j- this something like this just can't happen in the real world. Well, should we approximate that with stunts anyway and then augment it? Should we right. just forget about it and not spend three days and potentially ten, hundreds of thousands of dollars mocking it up? Those things are pretty much, you know, table stakes at this point, and right. they, they get done. Now, going back to your career specifically, and whether it was Band from the Ranch or Flat Earth, those early projects, what were you kind of learning? We're talking about things now, but in the 90s and 2000s, when visual effects were not as, like you're saying, bread and butter and, and kind of less mysterious, what challenges were you kind of experiencing? And do any of those initial shows stick out to you, uh, especially in kind of this formation of your career? Uh, it's a really good question. I was extremely fortunate to have a mentor in Van Ling at Band from the Ranch who, who mm-hmm. really took a chance on me. He he gave me my, my first big break and, you know, those those early days at Band from the Ranch for me uh, were, you know, my boot camp. And mm-hmm. it was my real education as to what to look for in an image. Like, why why is this visual effect, why does this exist? What on a, on a, I've always said that for me, compositing is an extension of my love of editing, where editing is you're taking these little tiny pieces of footage and trying to craft a story. Whereas compositing, mm-hmm. you're taking... Uh, in with, within a single shot, you're taking all these different layers and trying right. to compose a story. Yet it has to look real. It has to look authentic to the movie. It has to fit the style of the movie. Why is this shot here? And sometimes mm-hmm. uh, we, we all get bogged down in the technical stuff and black levels and color science and all this stuff. But Van helped me you know, with all of that stuff. But really a- allowed me when I was having a hard time getting a shot done or it's, something's just not working, the energy isn't right. He would, you know, just say, okay, just stop. Why is this shot here? What is the emotional uh, intent of this shot? Is it purely a gag? Is it supposed to, uh, is it a, he- a heel turn for the, for the villain? Is it something as mm. powerful as that? Or is it just that the character is learning something about themselves? And that may sound silly when you're talking about, you know, Inspector Gadget, the, the Matthew Broderick version, or um, sure. Dr. Doolittle, but it, it all matters. I mean, and that's our right. job. We are, uh, I'm not here to just assemble stuff and move it, you know, along the assembly line. I'm trying mm-hmm. to d- do what every other aspect of the, the, the filmmaking process is bringing to the table. So I'm going to think about those things, especially when something isn't working or the director isn't liking something and it can't necessarily articulate 
why right. a shot isn't working. And this stuff, you know, like Van and, and other mentors later would teach me, you know, th- there's, it's about opening your eyes to, you know, well, what is, when it really comes down to is what is art? Why, mm-hmm. why do we make art? And it, that's a, that's really big and broad and and some daunting and scary. But you know why are we making movies? It's because we're trying to elicit an emotional reaction. And the the, the tech and the color science that stuff is all achievable. It's all it's always changing and it's always frustrating. But those are those are solvable problems. And the big issue that is like why are we making these shots? So my early days before getting to ILM was like, okay, uh, everything is hard, (laughs) especially when you're at small (laughs) to mid range visual effects companies where the visual effects are sometimes an afterthought. The the clients are, uh, they're like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll shoot this and then we'll take all the footage back and then they'll figure it out. Um, that's one way to, you know, make a movie. It's not the the best way, but you know, for, for time and money, sometimes it has to be that way. So trying to make the best out of it and trying to piece together and try to tell these stories that way is, is one thing. And, and then when I got to ILM, it, we have a little bit more time. We have these amazing animation directors and visual effects supervisors who bring decades of knowledge to the table, a deep understanding of what the director wants for the scene. Mm-hmm. And if the director doesn't know what they want, we have a visual effects supervisor and animation director who will offer up suggestions and who ha- mm-hmm. who understands the heart of the movie. And that gets trickled down to the artists. Sure. This is what the shot should feel like. Some artists are, um, uh, love that kind of direction. Some artists are just like, just, just tell me how, how much greener you want it to be, how much brighter right. or darker or whatever. I, I have found that sometimes when people are stuck, just getting back down to the basics of why does a shot exist can really help. So I don't know. That was a long answer for. No, I love it. I love it. And I, and my, I don't know if you saw my eyes light up because Van Ling, of course, for the people listening, hopefully know he also designed uh, the menus, the DVD menus for the Star Wars DVDs. Like I think the Star Wars Insider did an article with him about designing DVD menus, which is like that is a crazy thing, but it still like stands out to me now, like as like something that was like impactful and even just like a storytelling experience in itself. Like you're saying, like that was a small. Thing, a small tiny project but that made a difference with setting up like how you feel when you watch the star wars movies anyway i love van ling as well <laughs> moving into ilm especially and, and kind of getting involved how did you first make that jump and then what were your earliest experiences kind of now working with industrial light and magic uh I, I had been working in la for a while and my my then girlfriend and i both were working in movies and uh we we realized we had had enough of Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> and we we put together our wish list, uh, forgetting about jobs, but forgetting about profession, which is really <laughs> just a wonderful flippant thing to do. Let's make toge- let's put together our wish list of, wh- of what cities around the world we would like to maybe move to. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we went separately to our, our different corners and we made our top 10 list and we, we came back together and our the number one, on both of our lists was the Bay area, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that her dream job was in the Bay area. You know, the, the, the far off dream of working in this particular place was in the Bay area. And, and so was mine because uh-huh. 
you know what i'm a buffoon in los angeles doing visual effects why would ilm you know even entertain my you know working there but you know we took the leap and (laughs) at the time ilm was looking for compositors on uh star wars episode two so Mm -hmm. i was uh right place right time and i guess i had a you know I had those years of experience in Los right. Angeles, and I had also been writing about visual effects on the internet for some time. Uh, so that got me in the door. And it was a project-based uh, employment for episode two. And mm-hmm. uh, at the end of that, they asked me to, to stay on, and I was like, ah, yeah, this is great. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so my very first uh, show at ILM was Star Wars episode two. And, you know, I, I was a very, even though I had, you know, a couple, you know, four, five, six years or whatever experience, I was very junior and it's right. extremely intimidating at first when you look at the people around you and you're like, oh my gosh, you did this. Oh my God, you did. Th- oh my God. I've read about you in Cinefax and you know, right. all that kind of stuff. As, as long as you can push that down, you just focus on the work and right. you know, it was a, it was a, a really nice progression. I think I worked on the um, the Droid Factory sequence in mm-hmm. um, Episode Two and the Clone War sequence at the end. But I spent most of my time in the Droid Factory. It was for the Murin right. Snow unit on Episode Two. I I also had I, I I had used After Effects as my main compositing tool, which is considered you know prosumer and it's huge in motion graphics. Tons of visual effects for feature films have been created in After Effects. Um, it's not considered the pro, you know, level, right. uh, tool. And at ILM at the time we had our own in-house created compositing software, which is actually, uh, had a similar framework to After Effects. So I was able to pick it up really quickly, but there's some things that After Effects tackles really well, which is, you know, iterative 2d animation. Most compositing programs aren't that you know, high end compositing programs are heavy into compositing, not necessarily taking 2D, uh, 2D images and moving them around and doing a lot of iterative uh, work with them. So even on episode two, I was, uh, I was kept pitching, okay, uh, we're looking through the open hangers of those gunships, uh, uh, like Mace Windu's on the left, Yoda's on the right or whatever, and we're looking through one of them and we see another gunship through the open bay doors and it gets hit with laser blasts and it gets caught on fire and explosions and then it actually crashes. I don't think we had any CG... Uh, fire and effects for that. They were really minimal. So I had to track a lot of real fire and real smoke and explosions Mm -hmm. onto that moving gunship. And very early on, I'm like, this is going to take, this is going to be really hard in the the compositing software. Can I, uh, I asked, you know, could I venture to do this in After Effects? Because it's going to be, I'm going to be able to burn through it really faster, Uh, scale up, scale down, swap out elements really quickly. And uh, Ben Snow and and Marshall Crosser, the compositing supervisor, gave me uh, the thumbs up on that, and it worked out really well. <laughs> you know, I got over I got <laughs> right. over to a Mac, and I was like, grab, grab, put a bunch of things together, and right. we got the shout out really quickly, and that was good because uh, this kept coming up over the next decade of like little right. things that I could do uh, that aren't necessarily good for the main pipeline of compositing. Uh, that I could just quickly do an After Effects, bring it back into our main compositing pipeline. That stuff was super exciting. And so those were the early days, and that kept going going into movies like Hulk and uh, Episode 3 and, and, right. and stuff like that, where I was always, I was doing most of my compositing in the main pipeline. 
but then mm-hmm. dabbling in the After Effects and like, oh, I'll just do this in After Effects and bring it in, right? Or do an entire sequence in After Effects kind of stuff. The super, it made it super exciting and fun, and, and it was unique to ILM. ILM definitely used After Effects. There was the the Rebel unit that that used Electric Image and After Effects, more off the shelf software. But our pipeline became super robust that that wasn't necessarily required anymore. But there were uh-huh. still these little tasks that were that After Effects were perfect for, that uh, me and a couple others uh, would do, and it was made it made it exciting. Yeah, I love that. I, your first ILM project being Attack of the Clones and Attack of the Clones, of course, being the first digitally shot movie. Did that impact your compositing at all and moving into the prequels and, and then later on projects? Like, has that changed the way that you did compositing back then or was it kind of just filming component? Well, taking like photochemical film out of the process is a, was a giant leap. And when it comes to um, editing and visual effects, where at that time, the movie, you know, the, every movie was shot on film. And if there's a lot of visual effects, hundreds of visual effects, those particular pieces of negative, if, the, if, if there was a blue screen or a background plate, they would have to be scanned. Right. And scanning film is not an exact science. And it's error prone. And if you, you, there's 10 takes of this shot. You have to, the editor has to decide which of the 10 takes to scan. And they, okay, well, I guess we pick take seven. And that's what we're going to use from the rest of, you know, for the entire rest of the production. Taking that whole scanning process, which is extremely expensive, laborious, and not an exact science, getting that, uh, removing that as part of the equation, having all of the photography be digital was incredibly, added such levels of flexibility where... Mm -hmm. Within minutes, we could look at those 10 takes. If we're having a problem with take seven, uh, oh, well, here's take two. Oh, wait, oh, there's a, it's, we're, pa- we're painting out something from take seven, and there's take two is a cleaner take. Could we use elements from take two to help paint out take seven? And, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Give us an hour, and we'll have it for you. And click, click, right. click, click, done. Uh, let's say we want to make the shot a little bit longer. Well, if you had scanned it, you'd only scanned a certain number of handles, which is like a like a buffer zone at each end of the uh, cuts at the beginning and end. 10 frame handles, 15 frames handles, whatever. Well, let's say the director's like, wow, this shot's really working well. I think we need to give it like three more seconds at the tail. Well, you have to yeah. go back to that negative that has already been scanned and scan it again. And a lot of the visual effects work has to be redone because it's effectively new footage. The match move is going to work. The compositing is, it may look very different. You have to then color time it so that it looks the same if you want it to look the same. So no. Oh, you want three more seconds? Okay. Give me an hour. You'll have three more seconds and you'll be able to reuse everything. It's going to cut against itself perfectly. Things like that were huge. It, It was, it was wonderful. Yeah. And I mean, especially like, as we know, like, George Lucas loved, especially in the editing process, using that to his advantage with crafting whole performances out of different takes. And so I think that's that's fascinating. And, and I'd love to talk about Revenge of the Sith in a moment, but at the same time you're working on the prequels, another franchise that I think has gotten its due, but people don't really realize the importance that it made to the visual effects kind of legacy is Pirates, and especially Pirates 2. And I would love to talk a little bit about your involvement with that and kind of how that shaped, especially then the future of, of visual effects and your experiences on, on that show. Yeah, uh, Pirates 2, uh, I guess 
it was, uh, I, I guess I was not, I was not on it for the entire time. I was on it near the end, but you know, the, the momentum of that show was quite stunning and you could feel there was a buzz in the air about what we were doing with pirates too. Cause it was not just the first pirates over again. It was right. very different and talk about, right. you know, Jurassic park type moments of milestones that, uh, as, as, as much as the um, amazing advancements of digital creatures had come in the, in the previous decade, the, uh, the, the, the amazing quality and quantity of the Cursed Pirates and Pirates 2 with Davy Jones and his gang, with that much screen time, that much importance to the plot, and interacting with tons of real things in the movie... Uh, with other actors and props and sets and stuff like that. Um, we knew uh, this is like, this is amazing. Uh, so I was, I was, uh, I, I, although I was on the show for what, what, a couple months, I was more of a, a spectator uh, on that one. And I got to enjoy, uh, I got to en- watch it happen and see everybody's um, in the company's uh, joy come out of this and terror. I mean, it's terrifying. Right. To have to work on this stuff because you just don't know if it's going to work. And right. then, of course, then I got to join in on the terror at the end. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, like that was a, a really remarkable show in that I don't, I think the, like the blue screens, like the way the film was shot, even with having so much CG involved with the movie, but the way that Gore, director Gore Verbinski and John Knoll and Hal Hickel designed how these characters are going to work within the movie was absolute genius. There are mm-hmm. certain, at that point, there's a, there's a playbook. How are you going right. to put these digital characters into these scenes? Um, but for a character that has this much dialogue, for Gore and John and, and Hal to settle on not only having the performance of Bill Nye, it's basically saying, I'm going to have Bill Nye on this on the set. You guys are going to put him in the motion capture outfits, okay? And and the pirates. We're going to record their audio and I'm going to film them as if this is the actual scene. This is the actual scene because I'm filming right. them and I'm giving them direction. I'm I'm and Bill Nye is going to improvise and he's going to do things that we don't know what what he's going to do. And right. All of the camera moves, all of the audio, we're going to record production audio on these boats out in the water or on a dock it's gonna feel just like the rest of the movie yeah now eventually ilm is going to have to uh execute on this character the tentacles the eyes the 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 you know top to bottom these are cg characters there's no part of their of their costume of their eyes or anything it is top to bottom cg that's all going to have to be accomplished somehow the tent the, the his beard of tentacles are going to have to move independently sometimes picking up things it's going to have to have uh the, the right amount of goo all, that's all going to have to happen but the right. essence of the character is being filmed and it, all the decisions are being made on the day by the director and the actor and and are being influenced by what's happening right in front of them that you know in conjunction with all the other things is what made that special and it feels so honest and real and i i, I that blows me away i, I, right. I it seems like maybe such a simple thing um and i'll also add to that 
that Gore uh, stuck to his script. He's got, mm. He stuck to his guns. He cut his movie together this way, as opposed to, oh, when when Jack Sparrow says something and he's human and he well, we've recorded, we filmed that. We've we have to have him say that line. I don't know. This scene isn't working. This sequence isn't working. Let's have uh, Davy Jones take a different direction with this. And maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe this isn't the scene for him to be threatening. Maybe this is the scene for him to be, uh, you know, more vulnerable. So Mm -hmm. all the lines are changed and complete reanimation and all this stuff. And now Bill Nye is going to be in an ADR booth recording it. And it's going to sound different than the way Johnny Depp sounded on that day. You know, those things are, were, that, 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 that is amazing forethought mm-hmm. and planning and sticking to one's guns. And I, I, all of it is on screen. It's right there in addition to all the amazing computer graphics. No, I, I, I've been just smiling the whole time. You can't see it in an audio podcast. Cause this is just like a Todd Vizieri Twitter thread come to life right in front of me. And I love it. This is cause <laughs> I mean, obviously, and people listening to the show, hopefully I already follow you, but, you're such an evangelist for effects. And I think especially for like we were talking earlier, the people that might view visual effects as a, isn't as fine or as proper as a practical effect or whatever it is. I think your Twitter feed, not only showcasing, like you're saying your love for editing, your love for special shots, but also like what visual effects can do and what they have done, I think is, is such a, a an important tool. Someone needs to just kind of put your tweets in a book and, and call it a day at this point. <laughs> your comment about gore brings up a, a further point, which is especially looking shows that you've worked on the, the directors that you've worked with to bring these to screen is incredible and and one thing that stands out to me especially is you know mi3 being jj's first movie and then working with him over and over again throughout the years and most recently on on rise of skywalker with his filmmaking evolving and with you and your skills and your tools evolving how has that path led to to bigger and bigger things and and what have you kind of noticed as as his movies have progressed it's really interesting like jj the what he brought to the table when he came with to ILM for Mission Impossible three, for for one thing, I'm a huge Mission Impossible fan, and mm-hmm. uh, that ILM would be involved with the Mission Impossible movie after you know I, I had not been around for the first one, uh, and then uh, Mission Impossible two was not that that effects heavy and uh, was not done by ILM, but having the the franchise come back for three was super thrilling, and also it wasn't the typical. Uh, ILM type of movie. I mean, ILM has always done supporting invisible type visual effects before, right. um, but there's, they're not usually the ones that make it into big, uh, you know, event reels. It's always, mm-hmm. you know, ET and Jurassic Park and Poltergeist sure. and you know these big spectacles. And while Mission Impossible Three had a couple spectacle based shots, it, that's not what the movie that we were making was about. Right. It was. Uh, supporting the frenetic sequences that J.J. wanted to put forth. And it's like every movie is different. Every Mission Impossible movie is different. You can't right. expect to, you know, we I worked on three and four. They're very different movies, and you can't take the things that you learned and literally copy-paste it to the next movie. So like the, like the bridge sequence in Mission Impossible 3 was such an incredible opportunity to do a ton of invisible visual effects. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that the you know that no actors were ever on the real Chesapeake Bay Bridge, right. and you're never supposed to even think about it. And there are no 
JJ did not want to have any crazy showy shots where you're like, here, look, you know, starting on the water and craning up over the bridge and then like, whoa, there's Tom Cruise. And then you're like, who right. would shoot this? No one would shoot it this way. This was this sequence right. was shot in a way that if you could have shot on the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, how would you capture it? And that spirit that Roger Guyette uh, and Pat Tubak and everybody at ILM worked with uh, JJ on uh, was incredible. And, mm-hmm. and it, I, I think you could, you see it in the sequence. So, and then, you know, going from that to Star Trek, right. you know, totally different. It still has, you know, his stamp on it, but it's right. a bit of a different experience. Right. Um, he still, you know, going, you know, be, I was, I'm lucky enough to work on all of his movies. And one of the key things about Star Trek was, okay, he shot first unit in a certain way. He shot it with very deliberate um, camera choreography with certain lenses. Um, Whenever you're on the bridge of the Enterprise, it looks a certain way. Mm -hmm. And we, the challenge for us, when we're sitting back and we're like, okay, we, at ILM, we're like, we've made a million space movies. How Mm -hmm. do we make these space movies, these space shots of Star Trek unique and different? And Paul Cavanaugh, was on Mission Impossible 3. He's the animation director of Star Trek. We, 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 it was like, okay, we have to do it with framing, with lenses. We have to make the Enterprise feel really big. And um, I think it was Alex Yeager and the, the art department was, would, would immediately pick up on the fact that, and we've learned this from other Star Trek movies, if you frame the Enterprise in a certain way, you know, just like a, a human being or a car or a, a whatever, you, you, you change the framing, and you, you're eliciting an emotional response. You can make the Enterprise look heroic. You can make the Enterprise look in danger. You can make the Enterprise feel really small. And then you could also make the Enterprise feel really big. So if bigness was your, uh, the solution that you're trying, the problem you're trying to solve, never show the Enterprise fully in frame with no, without it bleeding over the edges. And if you look really carefully at Star Trek, there are very few shots, if any, where the Enterprise is not breaking frame, meaning like part mm-hmm. of it is cut off. It's so big that you that the uh, the the film team, the, the camera team that went out into <laughs> right. space to film right. it, the set, the the Enterprise prop that they built, the real one, one to one in space. Right. I'm winking. <laughs> this is how they would film it, and that is what led me to go, okay. What, in, what can we do in compositing to give the impression that the exact same film crew that shot first unit, Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto and all that stuff, shot the exterior space sequences? Mm-hmm. And that went to, to lensing, choreography, camera shake, uh, when appropriate, uh, lens flares off screen, on screen, um, iris up and down, rack focus. Like, so we, we looked at first unit. I poured over that first unit footage and mm. tried to pick up what Dan Mandel was throwing down. And right. we did all we could to mimic the idea that, that, okay, on Tuesday they shot the actors. And then on Wednesday they went out in their spaceships <laughs> and they shot right. a space battle of the enterprise right. doing things. So that's what we, that's what we endeavored to do. I don't, you know, maybe we, we did it, maybe we didn't, uh, but, <laughs> but uh, that, that was, that was the plan. And it was super fun to try it. to make, the space stuff look different than Star Wars or other right. space movies. Yeah, I love it. And no, now, 
I love that movie so much. And now I'm like, well, I guess tonight I will be watching uh, Star Trek. So <laughs> that, I'm very excited <laughs> to rewatch. I guess going back to Star Wars, because yeah. I guess this is a Star Wars podcast, technically, and I, people will <laughs> be like, why didn't you ask him about this? Why? Is there, a, is there a battle between Star Wars and Star Trek? I'm not, I'm not aware of yeah, that. Yeah, I, 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 I really don't. I should look into it if there's a, a interview-style Star Trek podcast <laughs> out there that I could be like enemies with. No, I love, I've, everything behind me is Star Wars, and then like everything is Star Trek up there. So the Revenge of the Sith work that you did, I'd be interested with how that compared, obviously, with your first job being Attack of the Clones, and then you have some things under your belt, and when you get to Revenge of the Sith, people are a little more used to, especially what we were talking about, the digital compositing, and kind of working with all of that. Uh, any shots that might stand out to you or any work that you did with that team um, on that show specifically that still kind of holds a, a part of your mind? I think for me, I spent a lot of time on Mustafar for mm-hmm. uh, episode three. So it was um, putting together that that giant sequence of the, 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 the lightsaber battle between Obi-Wan right. and Anakin was a real joy. And it, it, it in a lot of ways showed... All of the, uh, the 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 flexibility and production techniques that George had been fostering with these prequels uh, to its fruition, and the uh, you know like the very simple amazing trivia of the fact that while Episode Three was in production, Mount Etna in Sicily was erupting, and Mount mm-hmm. Etna is one of those. Volcanoes, if I if I understand it correctly, where it's like Kilauea, where the eruptions are um, uh, not not controlled, but they're they're more uh, understandable, and mm-hmm. they can be filmed in a certain way. And George sent uh, a team of camera people to go, hey, go go film some lava and and you know Mount Etna erupting. Right. And he didn't just send a a camera team; he sent Ron Fricky. <laughs> <laughs> the director of Baraka, who who makes some of the most amazing imagery ever. Everybody go watch Baraka, please. B-A-R-A-K-A. Watch it right now. It is an amazing movie that'll change you. Uh, sent him to go shoot some lava geysers and lava mm-hmm. flows. Because what's better to use as reference for an entire planet that is covered with lava and volcanoes than real lava and volcanoes? So I don't know if the intention was originally for reference or if it was to maybe use these elements in shots, but very quickly we got the footage and we're like, we've got to use these in shots. So you've got real life lava geysers and blasts. We've got our CG lava for scenes where it is super fast moving and has to do very specific things in certain angles that we can never film. And then you've got the, the the miniature lava made out of mm-hmm. the uh, the the goop that they they right. put in um, milkshakes. And <laughs> this was the big. I think it was at the time the biggest model shoot ILM had ever done at the time in right. 2005. And putting this goop on plexiglass and underlighting it, and then having it flow on a uh, on a grade. We use and, and shot motion control to make sure that the speed was right. We did it with camera. So, and then we've got all this blue screen and green screen material of these sets, uh, the actors doing all their stuff, and we got to put it all together. And it's, it's like, this is so cool. This is a cool yeah. puzzle, and we just have to put it all together using all these different techniques and make it flow and make it, hopefully nobody's going to be thinking about which part is CG, which part is model, <laughs> which part is this. Uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing puzzle to put together. Um, so 
that 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 was great. Um, the CG stuff was right next to the real stuff, which is right next to the model stuff. Sometimes literally right on top of each other. So I did a bunch of those shots. Um, I think uh, Mike Conti might have been the sequence comp sequence supervisor. Willie Geiger did a ton of CG uh, uh, lava for that. I worked on a few shots with Aaron Benar. I mean, these just amazing yeah. artists. And then uh, Roger Guyet. And Pat Tubak uh, gave me the, the the sequence of Anakin burning up. Wow! Uh, from the uh, from the time he gets his two legs and other arm cut off to right. uh, Palpatine picking him up and taking him away, um, I I did all those shots and of him burning alive, and right. that was just I I, I don't know why pat and roger trusted me at that moment uh to do all this stuff but it was it was working hand in hand with the art department and trying to figure out what's the best way to accomplish this what's too gory what's not gory you know what's impactful what's emotional um working on that balance and how to make it look real um uh you know and and sympathetic and right you know uh, it, so that was that was just that's the thing I I look back on and go this this was a, this was an incredible challenge for me I don't know why they trusted me with it it seems to have worked out uh, yeah. I think I've scarred a lot of moviegoers and maybe young people who may not you know it was a PG thirteen movie the first PG thirteen Star Wars movie and right. uh, it earned it right there I mean right. we we were extremely cognizant about not going too far and putting us pushing us into the not just R-rated uh, level of terror but just from a feeling point of view like how how right. bad do we want this to be so that that when I think of episode three I think of that stuff and how how they gave me the opportunity to, to do that work incredible and still I mean still one of the most iconic Star Wars shots of all time um, speaking of iconic Star Wars it would be remiss not to talk about maybe your most important contribution which is the Stephen Colbert green screen challenge <laughs> of course you know same level I think as the Anakin uh, turning into Darth Vader sequence um, how did that happen what was your process and like what I mean I think that's so much fun and that that era of Star Wars is just it's just like my era of Star Wars and so I, I love it so much and I, I love hearing that you worked on that well it was back on the Colbert's old show the Colbert Report. And Stephen is clearly a, a giant Star Wars, Star Trek, Lord right. of the Rings. He's he he loves movies, and it comes through. It came through on the show, mm-hmm. and he did uh, his re- in his recurring segment uh, called Better Know a District, where he profiles a particular right. congressional district. He pr- uh, profiled um, Marin County, which is the home of mm-hmm. of Lucasfilm uh, and Industrial Light and Magic. And as a bit for the show, he uh, and, and after referencing industrial light and magic they cut to him on a green screen stage waving around a, a toy uh a lightsaber you know acting like he's in a star wars battle and and then saying to somebody off camera like oh we'll we'll add all this later but in post right okay great and then and then a stick with eyeballs comes in and mm-hmm. into frame and steven goes what's that jar jar and like he, <laughs> i mean it, we when I was a, I was a huge fan of the of the Colbert Report and I was watching it mm-hmm. live and I was like this is the funniest thing in the world I absolutely love this. The next day we all go into I, at, at, to work I think uh, 
we were working on Transformers, I was sharing an office with Tom Martinick, who was also a fan of the Colbert Report. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of us were talking about it. We thought it was super funny. Um, and very quickly, uh, on the internet, people were, other people were talking about it. And I, you know, one of those things where I think somebody overnight or even on the next day, they, they somehow grabbed the footage off of the web and were doing some really rudimentary, um, green screen pulls and putting him in various scenes or whatever. Right. And it was within 48 hours that, uh, so many of us on the ILM chat uh, message boards <laughs> were talking about it. We're like, right. should we, should we do something? This is, this uh-huh. is, should we do something independently? And, and it snowballed really quickly. And, um, uh, apparently George is a big fan as well. Mm-hmm. And he got, he heard that we were talking about it. So <laughs> apparently all the big wigs started talking about it at comedy right. central and Steven and, they uh, people knew that Tom and I were big fans of the show. We started this discussion and (laughs) foolishly (laughs) we, we were roped into slash volunteered to make a piece using Uh that footage and tell a story and somehow get it all working. And (laughs) Uh this was during the production of transformers that Tom and I were working Mm. on and (laughs) we're, we're handling our own challenges at the time on, on mm. that movie. And, but this was just one of those super fun things that happened very, very quickly. We had a small team. We all brainstormed a lot of ideas. George brought a lot of ideas uh, to the table. Um, I think Rob Coleman brought a lot. We <laughs> brought some yeah. animation and they wrote a quick script. I pitched what scene to put him in because on mm. episode three, I'd worked on a couple of the hanger shots where Obi-Wan and Anakin fly in and jump out of their, their cruiser. Um, I felt like that was a good uh, uh, candidate to put Steven uh-huh. in. And then of right. course, getting Jar Jar in there. Right. I mean, having him <laughs> say something that forces right. Steven to say what that Jar Jar and then do a whole <laughs> back and forth, getting Ahmed best to record Getting our animators to do this stuff in like two takes. They did it so quickly. We had to resurrect the Jar Jar model that we had already shifted to new pipeline systems. So it actually was a really interesting test bed to try to resurrect older models and make it work in the new pipeline. We actually learned a lot by doing it. I mean, it was nuts. And we're doing this on our off time and we could not let it affect our uh, Transformers work. So right. um, having that all happen, it turned out really, I think, super fun. We got to go mm-hmm. see the show. That's oh, where that's I got great. to meet George. I got to meet Stephen Colbert. We were all friends of the show, and we've maintained friendships with the Colbert team since then. I, it's, uh, you know, weird dream. You know, how do I mean, I, I'm saying all this stuff, and it just... None of these things, these words make any sense. That And especially because it happened to me, but it, it somehow did, and... It's it's kind of wild. That is great. I love that so much. Um, <laughs> again, looking at your uh, resume and looking at the, the shows that you've worked on, one that stuck out to me before we dive into to Disney Star Wars is Strange Magic, which is you know one of Luke's final projects. Any experiences working on that? Or what kind of was that whole process? Because that had a long production time. And then I recently just watched it on Disney Plus, and it's like... <laughs> very good <laughs> and the animation is beautiful and i'm like well, how did people not watch this movie really like it's so fun and so like it's so intrinsically george lucas i think and some people don't like that and i love that and i think 
anyway, that's enough about me gushing a strange magic, but your experience working on it must have been something else. Well, we worked on, in the history of ILM, tons of all synthetic sequences, entire space battles, whatever. Right. And moving that, moving into the CG world, we've done sequences in live-action movies that are ostensibly entirely synthetic, all CG, or even when it includes human characters or no human characters. So mm-hmm. working on an all-CG animated film was, yeah, it's bigger scale, bigger volume, um, but it's not something that we can't handle because we're storytellers right. and anima- we have amazing animators and all this stuff. So this is on the heels of Rango, which mm-hmm. I feel is... is, is a, one of the most it is it is a milestone show for industrial light and magic on on many levels so we had that under our belt and we learned a lot from that and strange magic i came on near the end um i uh, so i i don't have that much i didn't have that much time on the project um right. the, i think the work some of the work is just astounding and mm-hmm. in the amount of time that we were able to get it done and i got to uh, have a little bit of uh, time with Gary Rydstrom, who is oh, wow. an absolute yeah. god in movie making, one of my heroes. What an incredible collaborator, super generous, super nice. And I just, I, I think back at that, that about, about that time, and I, I, I keep coming back to the fact that I think in dailies, I made a joke about sound design or ADR in dailies mm-hmm. as a total little quickie aside and right. Gary Rydstrom laughed <laughs> and I'm like this is this is it you know this is yeah. I'm like I, I almost wanted to do a George Costanza and just walk you know walk out okay I'm done <laughs> I'm out yep. I'm out of here I'm out because yeah. it doesn't get any better than that uh so that yeah but you know it, it was an extension of Rango and we loved working on this stuff and we're gonna be doing more of it and I'll just stay tuned about that. And I just, it's super exciting. And, you know, it, it, and having that kind of close collaboration with filmmakers is just, is just golden. It's wonderful. Yeah. And I mean, I, that's a great segue into the, the current Star Wars movies. And the first one, obviously, being your opportunity to work with JJ again. But mm-hmm. as we move into Force Awakens and this new era of what Star Wars looks like and feels like, what was your process with you and your team and kind of creating the pieces needed, especially Force Awakens is a miracle movie with how well it works and how it reached so many different types of people to get excited about Star Wars again. And that in itself makes it an incredible Star Wars movie. But then in addition to that, the visual effects boundaries that were pushed and the ways that it felt familiar while at the same time, not relying on, on like old tropes and and things that might've just been, easy to kind of go back to. I'd be very interested in hearing your process and kind of how that all came together. Well, it's, it's, you know, having worked on a lot of franchise movies, there's always that like, okay, well, there is, there is a history here. We need to, we need to honor that history and honor that tradition. And also as great franchise movies do, you got to push it forward. You have to show something new. And now that this is an additional trilogy, you know, where the prequels reinvented how Star Wars could look or or and this was an extension of it, we're going to do the exact we're going to do something similar again. We need to rethink right. how we want to present this stuff, how we want it to look, how we want it to feel, how reminiscent do we want people to be thinking about the old trilogy or the old feeling? I mean, we we really just wanted to get back to feeling, which made the calculus even harder on Rogue One, which we could talk about later, which is a literal back in time where you're just like, okay, we, 
Yeah, well, well, we'll get to it. <laughs> that, but like, you know, Phantom Menace was shot with anamorphic lenses, but episode two and three were not. And you could, you could, if you, if you're looking for those types of visual, the, the visual characteristics of those movies, I think lensing makes a huge difference. And sure. the, the choice to use anamorphic lenses on the force awakens and last Jedi and rise of Skywalker, you know, is deeply ties it to the original trilogy. So all of the research that we had been doing about like what, and, and what does an anamorphic movie look like and how does that relate to the visual effects? How does it relate to the all CG sequences? Just, it, it's just a further extension of that. And that, that's something that I, it actually started on mission possible three where there was this, crazy renaissance of like this 10 year period where anamorphic was just back and it was Mm -hmm. back with a vengeance. Um, the, the transformers movies, the star Trek films, the the mission impossible three and four. So I, you know, we, we put a ton of effort into emulating how that was going to work with our cameras. How is it going to work with our lens distortion and artifacts and all that stuff. So we brought all that to the table on force awakens. And then how, do these iconic, uh, how do we take these iconic designs that we've all know and love? How do we alter them and put them in places that you've never seen before? How, what right. does, what do X-wings look like scraping across a, 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 a lake? What do TIE fighters look like flying in the atmosphere? Uh, so the, these were super fun challenges where, you know, we got to make it look real. We got to make it look honest and it fits it to fit the movie. And it also needs to somehow poke at that feeling of wonder and discovery that you remember uh, seeing the original trilogy for the first time. You know, like Star Wars, a little bit of weirdness. There's got to be something like weird about right. these shots. Yeah. So that was the challenge and for Force Awakens, and that just continued with these other movies and Rogue One and Solo kind of going back in time. Like, how are we going to... Mm-hmm. Where do these fit in the puzzle, like in the visual vocabulary of Star Wars? And it was a it was a challenge. Like, Rogue One, we wanted the space battle to look like Star Wars, but we can't make it look like Star Wars because if we right. made it look like Star Wars, it would you would see the seams. And if you mm-hmm. look at analytically the original you know, uh, space battles from a new hope, you know, you, you, it works for the movie, but Mm. we can't do that for rogue one. So how do we retain the spirit of what that felt like and make it a 20, uh, 2016 looking movie with all of the excitement that you would expect and all of the emotion of that you would expect. And how do our filmmakers, you know, how do we bridge this gap? And Hal and John, I think that an amazing job, with yeah. the choreography and cinematography and the feeling of these shots for Rogue One, um, you know, which is a, a different challenge than Force Awakens. Um, and we, we, we came up with the saying, it needs to, for Rogue One, it, it needs to look the way it felt. Mm-hmm. I love you know, that. it can't look the way it looked. It needs to look right. the way it felt and the way your mind's eye uh, projected that into what, what would that look like if you actually saw it. And these are really deep and abstract and weird things, but th- this is something we had to iron out, and it's something we, you know, we're constantly working on through each of those productions. And I, I think that's a good bridge because um, with Rogue One and having to be a, a sequel or even a prequel to A New Hope, and kind of staying within that '70s kind of mindset, 
some of the things that made Rogue One even more special were the kind of focuses. And you mentioned how Hickel and John Nolan, especially the Tarkin and the Leia shots, really even now stick out to me. And my favorite my favorite Disney Star Wars scene, I think, is still the gold leader, red leader scene. Like, I still think that's, like, the biggest pop I've ever, like, experienced in a Star Wars How movie. How cool was that? Me. That was such an incredible moment, wasn't it? Even us getting the footage. Yeah, even us getting the footage and we're like, Oh, this is so cool! And then, <laughs> and then we realized we had to completely rota him out of the out of the out of the footage, and we had to clean up the right. footage, and then we had to add new interactive light, and we put him in a CG cockpit. And uh, you know, where oh are they going to cut? How many lines are they going to use? Are we going to morph his mouth? We didn't end up morphing his mouth. How are we going to do all this stuff? And it was like, oh man, when they got all cut together, it was so <laughs> cool. It, it it is still because like. There, there is an element of fan service with any franchise like we were talking about, but I think when the moments matter is when it's it's done well and when it's like done for a storytelling purpose. And again, going back to Tarkin and Leia, I think that is not just to be like, oh, look, there's Tarkin. It's to serve as a story, but also to push the boundaries of kind of what visual effects can do. And um, I'd be curious if you had any interaction with those shots itself or kind of that, like you're saying, the groundswell yeah. of, of excitement that kind of came with especially those two characters in particular. Well, you know, like doing that type of, you know, middle of the franchise movie, It you, there's all these characters that they wanted to make sure. This was a pivotal moment in Star Wars history. We wanted to make sure right. we, we could not ignore the characters that are uh, surrounding those events. We couldn't, we couldn't include everybody, but we would have to include people and John Knoll who you know, came up with the original story and uh, all this stuff. And we, we all uh, realized that Tarkin was going to have to be a part of it. Um, there's going to be these other characters, like some of the rebel leaders, like uh, like some of the rebel fighters. And how are we going to uh, portray these people? And I, I love that some of them were just cast actors that, look, that were lookalikes. Some of them were, am I getting this right? Where Mon Mothma was in a deleted scene, mm -hmm. right? From episode yep. three? From episode three, yep. And the actress still looks like Mon Mothma, and it's like, <laughs> right. okay, get her in there. Recycling right. footage from episode four, and then doing entirely synthetic characters as well. I mean, I, right. I, how, how cool is that? And, you know, talk about different tools for the right job. Yeah, I was, uh, I was a lead um, on the digital human team for Rogue One. Uh, I did a lot of regular shots at the beginning of the movie, but then I, I segued into the, the digital human stuff. It was mostly Tarkin, obviously, and then one right. uh, Leia shot. And uh, what an, I mean, you talk about just incredible collaboration and mm -hmm. moving at light speed for a stuff that was beyond what we had done before. Um, mm -hmm. Iterative, of course. Um, mm -hmm. But we took this, this interesting vertical uh, approach where with uh, the Tarkin and Leia stuff, um, the digital human team all worked together. It wasn't the typical uh, visual effects pipeline where uh, a modeler uh, creates the model, a painter, a texture painter paints it, uh, an animator animates it, or and a rigger rigs it, uh, a lighter lights it, and then a right. compositor puts it together. We worked in parallel the entire time. And that was mm -hmm. super important for all of us to, for this small group to work together for many, many months and watch it all happen in front of us. Because very frequently 
lighting, we talk about shading at the same time of motion capture. How how are we gonna how are we gonna handle the targeting? That would happen at the same time with animation. No, no, we can handle that in animation. Don't worry about that in tracking. Oh, wait, we have a shader problem with the eyelashes. How is that going to work? Oh, the blood flow. The creature dev people are working on blood flow and pursed lips. And how the skin, when tensed, how it recovers from that tension. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, wait, no, no, we can do that. We can do certain things in compositing. Uh, How are we going to handle the depth of field? How are we going to do it? And we're all talking about it together at Mm -hmm. the same time. And as opposed to doing a phase and then seeing if that right. worked. And then the other, the next phase of, of business going, oh, what's the deal with this animation? Uh, do you want to, how, how are we going to handle this? How are we going to handle, oh my gosh, the amount of conversations we had about the split line of where uh, Tarkin's head uh, ends and where mm-hmm. Guy Henry's physical performance right. begins. So we had certain shots where, Tarkin was all CG. We had other shots where it was a CG head on top of Guy Henry's body. And how, how is that all going to work? And where is the best place to hide the seam? Where, where would we get the best, the most flexibility, the most fidelity? Like mm-hmm. uh, the match move has to be perfect or otherwise his head's going to be bobbing around. Right. Um, what things can we do to make that even uh, more airtight. And sometimes we actually did the seam or the tr- traditional scene for something like that. The seam, and I'm of course pointing at the zoom call is where the flesh meets the collar. And right. we came up with the, t- we, we didn't want to always have that be the split line. So sometimes we would render a CG collar and put that on the physical, um, mm-hmm. uh, plate photography costume. And I would eventually paint out the real, uh, collar if it became a problem. And right. that helped so much. Like even sub-pixel um, misregistrations of the CG and the plate, if it's against, if it's flesh against the top of the collar, that's more visible. If it's right. uh, collar against outfit against the costume, co- costume against costume, you're not going to be seeing it. It's not. That's not a lot right. of contrast. Like, so things right. like that, where we're talking about it, and and, and this is all happening. Uh, like vertically integrated. We're all working on it at the same time. And we solved so many problems in such a short amount of time. It was super exciting. I mean, again, not to like gush over Rogue One, but it's the first shot you see Tarkin. You see him in the the window and you're like, okay, like that's that's how they're going to do it. That's cool. And then he turns around. You're like, oh shit. Okay, that's good. (laughs) Like, here we go. Because I have... Because whenever I see a Star Wars movie, me being me, I see it and then I leave the theater and then I go see it immediately again just to like be able to register it. And so leaving that first time, I was explaining to my girlfriend, I was like, Peter Cushing is no longer alive. That was a... And she was like, oh, okay. Like it, it was so, at least for for an audience like didn't understand, like it was yeah. so seamless. And I think that if anything is the legacy of Rogue One it, for visual effects, it's, it's those incredible shots that you I'm, guys I'm did. I'm glad you liked that one. That was, that was one of mine. Uh, okay. that, uh, the, the way Gareth Edwards, the director allowed us to, um, he, he really wanted to play with depth of field on this show. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the movie had a very shallow depth of field and on that particular shot, I mean, I loved pulling focus on this movie on, on Rogue One. I mean, it, we had mm-hmm. long conversations about focus on this movie and that mm-hmm. particular shot, the, the way Tarkin is introduced, was super fun because there's a lot of stages to that shot because it starts right. over the shoulder of Krennic and you were dollying with him 
and you see this man and you see the back of his head and he's looking at something out there. And then we continue to dolly past Krennic and you're still seeing the back of Tarkin's face and you don't know it's Tarkin yet. You know, Star Wars fans are probably guessing it's Tarkin. Right. And <laughs> the shot is lingering so long. We rack focus to the, uh, to the Death Star where you're seeing the dish being put in. Right. And in the rack focus, I even tried to briefly stop so that you just for a second, the focus was on the reflection of the, of the, of the window right. where you could see sort of see his face. You see some rim light and stuff, but right. I go directly, I go to the death star and then I split the difference a little bit on his reflection where you're just like, what are, wait, who is that? What are we looking at? And you could, you're like, I'm, I'm wanted the audience to squint to see what, right. who are we looking at here? And the timing of racking back to Tarkin and then uh, when he turns around and how we would light all that stuff, uh, it was super fun. And Gareth was it. totally on board with it. John Knoll was having such a blast. And it was mm-hmm. it was really, really great. And to get all those anamorphic feelings right uh, with all the rack focus, that, that was just a dream for me. And, you know, oh, I love it. Uh, it, it, so I'm, I'm glad I'm glad it worked out. And, and that is exact. <laughs> that is exactly that progression of are they really going to? For for people who knew who that was, right, right, the progression of are they gonna are they gonna show him? Are they are they really gonna show him? <laughs> and having people oh my god he turns around that that is what Gareth and John wanted that is ex- that was yeah. very intently done um, to make it a, a really cool reveal so that was that was super well, fun. worked that's good <laughs> talking about directors and of course with Ryan Johnson and the Last Jedi my personal favorite installment of of the. Disney era stars movies so far. How did that change for you and your team and the shots that you were doing? And is, was there anything that he brought sensibility wise that affected kind of um, your process or at least the shots that you guys were, were working on? Ben Morris was VFX supervisor on that one. And he worked very closely with Ryan and Ryan is, is an incredible problem solver, super great storyteller. And um, the, the literal story, I mean, this is the only, uh, Star Wars movie that was written and directed by a single person of all right. of them. Right. Um, and with his eye on that and emotion and the, th- you know, talk about what is the purpose of every scene and every shot. Um, if anybody's on that, it's, it's Ryan Johnson. Um, mm-hmm. He knows why every shot is there. Um, and that, that is a slightly different sensibility than the other directors. And it's, it was, you know, mo- we, we, again, these franchise movies, sometimes it's the same people behind the camera on, on all of them. And it's really cool. Right. You get to progress on that. But having these different, this different blood on each movie, Mission Impossible, Star Wars, whatever, it's, it's really cool to have, right. to, ta- to take these sets of toys and have different folks come in and go, oh, all right, this is, this is, oh, we never really considered juxtaposing that with that. Um, right. And that's a you know uh, we on Last Jedi uh, I was a little bit on crate, and I worked on the um, the uh, crystal foxes, and that w- that was my main task with Eric Ippen, who was the main look dev uh, person on that on those guys, uh-huh. and uh, they were really hard. They were really yeah. hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crystals and glass. It's it, to make a character <laughs> out of them. It's hard. <laughs> Uh, look great. Those are because so, we talked to who designed those. Aaron McBride designed those. I want to say um, sounds about right. I could be wrong. 
I will edit that out if I was incorrect, but <laughs> one of my favorite kind of new creatures from the, the sequels, because again, there's a, there, it's like we're talking to these things that are so incredible and took so much effort and have so many people working on them. And then there are the people that are like, I wish they used creature from episode four instead, you know, instead of creating all new worlds. And I really think, especially with the Disney era movies, the, the creation of all these new characters and aliens is, is something that mm. I love more than, more than anything. Um, we talked about Rogue One having to be um, tied pretty intrinsically to to A New Hope. And whenever I talk to someone that worked on Solo, it always sticks out to me that it had to be 10, 15 years before A New Hope. And so you have to kind of create a period piece in itself, right? So you end up making that, what, 1960 kind of movie. Um, how were the visual effects shots developed with that respect in mind? And then how did your work kind of evolve now with that being, what, the fifth Disney era Star Wars we, movie? We most at least on visual effects, you know, Rob Rado was there uh, at the, for the very beginning uh, of right. the inception of the project through all of its uh, dimensions. And yeah. uh, he was really uh, the caretaker of it all. And he's our visual effects supervisor. Now he's our co-head of ILM. He had his, his finger on the pulse of this movie and him and, and Bradford Young's photography and the right. the effort that was put into all of the set design of really going to that rustic uh, lived in world of what we consider mm-hmm. Star Wars was our guide. And for for us in, at ILM, the Falcon is the star of the movie. And we we put a ton of effort into making sure that Falcon looked as cool as possible, as clunky as possible, as unreliable, and, you know, all of those things as possible. Right. And so taking those cues um, of the photography and of, from Rob's vision of what we were trying to do, it, it all, that, that's, what, that's what drove us. I, I personally was heavily involved with the uh, Gravity Well sequence at the end. Um, which is, you know, not exactly very Star Wars like uh, to have this gravity well and this monster mm-hmm. in the middle, you know, being dragged into it and all this stuff. It's, it's, it's more monster movie right. type stuff. So we took our cues from monster movies and how, again, with scale, how do we make this thing feel really big? You know, the the scale difference between right. the uh, Falcon and the gravity well and monster. It's like mm-hmm. the, this it's that Falcon is really tiny. How do we make this compelling? And right. a lot of experimentation with camera angles and the edit constantly changing and us, us driving, helping drive the edit, uh, how that was all going to work was super yeah. exciting. Um, and I think it turned out really cool. I, it's, it's, it's unlike a lot of other, uh, Star Wars sequences. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it worked. I love, I love Solo <laughs> and that whole, cause you've heard about the Kessel Run for forever and seeing it in action, I think was just so, was so rewarding and it really, it really did turn out well. Moving briefly from the movies itself to, to rides and to Disney parks, your work on both the Star Tours, Rise of Skywalker section, as well as Rise of the Resistance when you're having to design for a theme park experience, how does that affect what you're doing? Uh, and then are there any, I keep using the word sensibilities, but how, what sensibilities are, are brought yeah. in, are brought in while you're, while you're doing that? Yeah. Um, well, you, you've, have you been on Rise of the Resistance? Yes. I, should I, say. I, I got very lucky in December. It was, we saw Rise of Skywalker and then I got on a plane and went to Orlando 
and we were able to do the Exegol thing like immediately, like a day after I saw. Oh and my so god! It was like Lando That's doing great. it right. It was incredible, and then getting to ride Rise the next day and doing Batu. So anyway, I got very lucky because now like you couldn't really do it. But yeah, so I've done them all, and it was like the craziest thing. So uh, Bill George and John Alexander were in charge of that at, on the island side for Rise, uh, Rise of the mm-hmm. Resistance, and you know, having been, you've been right. on it, and if you were to describe the experience of Rise of the Resistance. You, you, you'd probably have to talk about it for about 10 minutes because, and you sound like a crazy right. person because it's like, this is so ambitious and so weird and so wild that, and the fact that you can go on it like a dozen times and never have the same experience mm-hmm. twice. It is so cool. Yeah. So, um, it, when, when we create imagery for these different types of experiences, it's uh, we have to again have the spirit of the of the work be uh, infused in it. But it's no longer a movie, you know. Rise those those big giant uh, things that you're seeing out those windows. Right. It can't look like you're watching a movie. It has to look like it's happening out there. So things uh, change. Our our resolution changes. Our frame rate changes. The cameras change. The uh, lensing changes. We talk about things like lens flares a lot or camera shake uh, or rack uh, depth of field. Those are tools that are used in movies right. because that's movie vocabulary. That Those are not tools we can rely on for these experiences. So um, even something like a glow in space, like what if a laser blast glows, you know, what's going right. on there? Is that happening in the lens of the camera? Is that happening out in the world in, in space? Because there's no atmosphere in space. So, how, but we have we have to have Star Wars appropriate glow. How is this going right. to work? It was really fun coming up with those types of uh, solutions and at a, at a higher frame rate. I had to get used to the higher frame rate type right. stuff because it has to look like it's happening in front of us. Real life is more than 24 frames right. per second. So how does iconic Star Wars, how does Star Wars iconography look at a, at a higher frame rate is something I had to get used mm-hmm. to, uh, have, even having worked on a bunch of these movies. So they, it, it was an incredible feat. Mm-hmm. And uh, my hat's off to, to the Disney team because it, is, it was super exciting to see. We, it, who knows if this stuff was all going right. to work. And it's so it's cool. So <laughs> it's a, it is the cool, because yeah. I... I because with that and having to go in December, that was right when it opened. And so you had to like, I had to wake up my family at 5 a.m. And I was like, guys, like, we're going to do this. And like, hopefully it's worth it. And it was, so like having it actually be worth yeah. it was was uh, at least personally important. <laughs> and it worked out very well. Um, I guess to, to wrap everything up, and we touched on it briefly at the very beginning, but now moving into the future of visual effects and, and you being at Industrial Light and Magic and being at the forefront of everything not only with stagecraft and with this blending and with these like iterative process like we're talking about, where do you see visual effects and the importance of its role in storytelling going even in the next 10 or 20 years? And how do you kind of see that process evolving for you and for industrial light magic and for the industry at at large? Well, I think, you know, the lessons that are coming out of our work on Mandalorian are, uh, are, are lessons that even if you don't use stagecraft uh, are, are ones that show how when visual effects is involved from the beginning and it's part of the discussion at the beginning of a process that you will save money. You will get greater production value. You will have a happier team when visual effects is 
considered just the similar part of the process as casting and costumes and uh, uh, cinematography. It, you know, by, by the nature of how stagecraft is done, it is intimately in, uh, uh, integrated into first unit photography and pre-production and planning. And it could tell you right off the bat, like, okay, we don't, if we can visualize this, how much of this set are we going to build and how much are we going to do it synthetic or how much are we going to do it on stagecraft? Everybody is better off and, you know, you save money and it's, it, it, it is better for these types of films. And it's not just genre films. It's not just creature films. Pretty much any movie can take advantage of this. Uh, take a, take advantage of these types of of uh, uh, advances in cinema. It's 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 super exciting and, and like those those. I've I've always been obsessed with rear projection and front projection and where it's where it's done really well, where it's done really poorly. Why is it done poor? Why are we? Why don't we buy this? Why is this uh, uh, clashing for our eyes and our brains? And why does this not fit? Um. It's since the beginning of cinema. Every every shot is a trick shot. And just because your movie might just be about people talking and having emotions and having uh, 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 relationships, um, you could save a lot of money and time if you just if you if if you have things that you need to do that are potentially uh, budget busters or, or a location that you want to be in. These things can happen, and they actually. It could be more pleasant than you can ima- than you may imagine, um, if you have a, a team that understands the process from the beginning, and uh, that so that stuff is super exciting to me, and it, it, it's something as heavy as the Mandalorian is on re- relying on this stuff to go to other worlds all the time, but it can it could be applied to many different things, and things like that are just super exciting. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And I think, I think, what was it? Dr. Strange, I think is going to be doing it now. Like, I think the, the, the industry is realizing like what you're describing, you can go shoot the plates, you can have the visual effects already created and then, um, kind of make sure the actors are, are immersed in, in this environment. And so I, I love, I love it. And honestly, like uh, they should just open it up and like charge people a hundred dollars, like go in and see it for a second. And I would just be like, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. But it's also, you know, it's like being on set. If you've ever been on a set yeah, of exactly. a real movie, you know, it's a, it's super exciting for about the first ten minutes. And then you're like, okay, like, and then you're like, oh my gosh, right. this is boring. When does the action start? When is right. wait? They just rehearsed, and now they're taking a two hour break, and those people are going to fiddle with those C stands for about for you know. Right. What, so it the sometimes you don't want to look right. behind the curtain <laughs> because it's not as exciting as you may think. It is. Right. Well, uh, I appreciate you making it very exciting for, for this episode and this interview and taking the time with these stories and, and everything also like you're talking about, like the evangelizing you're doing for effects is is incredible. And uh, Mr. Vizieri, thank you for coming on and, and talking. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you again to Mr. Vaziri for coming on the show and devoting so much of his time to telling these stories to me. I've wanted him on Talking Bay 94 for such a long time, and man, it was worth it. 
Make sure you're following him on Twitter, at TVaziri. He is truly one of the best people to follow, period, on that app. This Friday, we'll be back on Scener doing a live rewatch of that day's Mandalorian episode at 7.30 p.m. Central, this time with our friends at What the Force. Head to Scener.com slash TalkingBay94 to set a reminder, and I'll see you there. Until next week's episode, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.